Asama dudes, it is Monday, 6 a.m. And you know what that means? It's another episode of Big Stick Energy. I just want you to sit back for a second and imagine this scenario where Out of Bounds podcast is on a ski trip in Hakuba, Japan, getting pitted, and he meets this beautiful little honey called Collar Daddy. They take some tequila shots, maybe some fireball. They're getting a little wiggy on the dance floor. They go skiing the next day. And the next thing you know, they're slipping in cozy at night and all of a sudden they have a love child. What is that love child? It's big stick energy. We're combining the two best aspects of those shows. We got the sassy, trashy, classy aspect of Call Her Daddy and all your favorite parts about the outdoor industry with our own little slice of heaven that's really challenging some gnarly crap in the ski industry and the outdoor industry because that's what it's about, baby. So you've got myself, Tori Anderson, and my best friend, Renee McCurdy, here to bring some maximum sass to your ear holes again and on every Monday moving forward. You can find me at Tori A. Alina and Renee at... At Renee McCurds. McCurds, you heard it. You know the drill. This is episode number two, and we're ready to get into it. I guess the first thing I wanted to say, and Renee, from both of us, from the bottom of our hearts, is thank you so much to everybody that listened to last week's episode. It was honestly mind-blowing, the level of response that we got from everybody and you know, the number of people that shared it. And like we had guys slipping into our DMs that were opening up to us about how they didn't realize that the experience for women working on shops was that gnarly and the level of sexism that we experienced. And there were girls messaging us, telling us that it felt really good to hear an experience that represented theirs. And it made them feel a little bit less alone, a little bit less crazy. And you know, that's the goal at the end of the day is to share these experiences and to try to create that equitable space. So that was completely bananas for us. And, you know, the level that you guys are sharing the podcast and you're engaging with it, like that's freaking huge. And that's just going to keep pushing the movement forward. So like we said, it's an honor to keep growing with this community and we're super freaking stoked on it. Um, if you guys do want to keep sharing it, that's freaking dope. Thank you so much. And if you feel like leaving us a review too, that is also fantastic. We, uh, we also loved how so many people called out Solomon on their stories. It's like the womb tank community is we ride it down, bitches. We're here to get that shit done. I can't believe how many people were doing that. So keep the sass up. Uh, coming up soon here, we've got a couple giveaways that we're super stoked on. We've got some sick guests lined up other than our one today. He's the bomb.com. Um, and we also are looking for more guest suggestions. So if you guys want to slip into our DMs and give us some recommendations or just give us some hardcore tea, some cool topics to talk about, let's go. We're looking for all of it. Uh, on another note, Renee is going to introduce our guest again today and give you a little down low on what we're talking about. So this week we have Confessions of a Ski Bum. I'm sure a lot of people don't know who Confessions of a Ski Bum actually is. He is a guidebook writer, and he has a brand new book coming out, and his real name is Marcus Baranow. <laughs> Tori and I have both had the pleasure of skiing with him and learning from him. He skis over 100 days per year easily. Huge bush fanatic. He loves to ski the bush and find new zones, explore, get those spots locked down for everyone so they can have access to all those resources. 
We talked about a few different things. We talked about his criticism that he got to his book, impressions of people on backcountry skiing, how they perceive backcountry skiing to be. We talked about sexism, a little bit of that tea, because you know how we actually love tea. <laughs> and yeah, we are stoked to have yet another episode come out and get into some talk about gatekeeping, localism, zone ownership, all that fun backcountry stuff so we can get the ball rolling on a new conversation. That's it. You heard it. So let's get into episode two of Big Stick Energy, dropping in three, two, one. What type of buttholes? Elitist buttholes? Yeah, elitist buttholes. Very loose elitist buttholes. Does no. you guys get that? No, no, they're tight. They're too tight. No, no, no. Are too tight. That's the problem. Okay, but in workaholics, like they say, I don't know if you know the reference, but it's loose butthole is bad and tight butthole is really good. So when like something rad happens, they're like very tight butthole. So I think elitist would be loose buttholes. Uh, see, I was thinking it's about on the like, spectrum. I think it's I, the other way around. <laughs> yeah, like I think of it as like. Your butthole is so tight that when your head is stuck up there, it can't come out. No, no, okay. let's just get like scientific, the, right? Like if your butthole so is so far tight, far. you can't shit, right? And if you can't shit, it backlogs. And you're full of shit then. And you're full of shit. Yeah. So that makes type sense. Hell, you're full of shit. That makes sense. You're full of shit, but also your head is so far up your butthole, you can't get it out. All right. So workaholics, we would like to formally address this analogy and say that we have debunked it. Okay, <laughs> moving forward. So elitist tight buttholes. On that note, Marcus, do you mm -hmm. want to um, introduce yourself? Give us the quick like speed rundown of who you are, what you do, the what's are what's and who's who's. you calling me a butthole? <laughs> you're, apparently you're a loose butthole with uh, the analogy. Uh, so sure. good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, so yeah, my name is Marcus Barino. I write guidebooks. I ski a lot. Um, I have a cat. And uh, I don't do much else, really. Um, really into like exploring zones, documenting them, and getting to really know them, like for skiing. That's probably maybe what I'm not known for best, but maybe indirectly, they just don't know it. Um, I think a lot of people have a misconception of what I do for skiing. That's me. What do you think their misconception is? Oh, we're going to get into it. <laughs> um, well, like anytime I ask someone to go skiing with me, if I don't really know them or something, they go, oh, I can't, I can't ski with you. I'm like, what, why not? Like, what's, what's the issue? And they're like, oh, you, you only ski gnarly stuff which like I'd say that accounts for a pretty small percentage. Um, you know, I ski, I could ski whatever, maybe not as good as both of you guys, but um, it's like, you know, I, I get to those gnarly lines, I do them, but like almost all my skiing is like, you know, what I would describe as like blue runs because otherwise you just get in trouble in the back country if you're skiing 150 days a year um, and you only ski gnarly stuff. So, and then the other thing I do is like exploring. So like 
you know, you're looking for new access routes, you're looking just to ski powder, you're looking to ski like safe tree zones, um, or just like fun skiing. And I think the that's the misconception that I don't do this kind of stuff. I, I don't go out and just ski power or whatever. Um, that, and I think it's because social media puts such a emphasis on, you know, if I ski aimers, cool or ski, whatever, something like that, then everyone, you know, pays attention. But then, you know, the, the 20 days before that skiing powder in the trees or just going exploring or whatever, you know, they don't, it's not that interesting uh, to most people. So you say you like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Renee. Oh, I was going to say, I think that that's also the bulk of what backcountry skiing is for most people is actually just skiing blue runs because that's what's safe and that's what's good most of the time that you actually feel confident in riding. So it's interesting that people think that yourself as more of a backcountry professional is pushing the envelope rather than respecting the terrain. The envelope. <laughs> um, you yeah. said you don't ski gnarly stuff, Marcus, but I gotta say the way that you can, like your hips don't lie swiveling through tight Rockies glades, that's gnarly to me. I could oh, never, yeah. wow. anytime I go <laughs> ski touring with him, he's like, yeah, just like dip through here. And it's like, swerve, 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 swerve. And I'm just like, I am, cannot do that. I don't even understand how you get through those tight glades that fast. It's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tree, tree skiing is a thing that most people don't, you know, they don't look for, right? Like you're saying like tight glades, but you know, they're not even glades, you know, like these are Rockies trees are like, they're, it's, you know, it's not quite bush. Like I grew up skiing bush in Quebec and Ontario in the backcountry because there's really not much else and just like thin snow and just everything shit. And, you know, as eight-year-old, nine-year-old kids, that's what we skied in the backcountry you know, off the resort. And, you know, now I'm like over 40 and I've been skiing like that for like 35 years or whatever. And I don't even think about it. I just, yeah, dart through the trees. And I guess it's kind of gnarly, but it's not like the gnarly that people care about. People I guess so. Like, yeah, they just think it's shitty, right? And for most people, it's shitty train because it's it's hard to negotiate, right? But but to each yeah. one, I, I love it. So I know you yeah. do. I just see you <laughs> vibing, and I'm just oh. cursing my hip flexors. <laughs> On the topic of people <clears throat> thinking all backcountry stuff is gnarly, I've also had that a lot with heli skiing. It's like telling someone I'm going heli skiing. They think that I'm Travis Rice jumping out of a helicopter in an Alaskan peak. And it's like, no, it's like a yeah. lot of the time it's like, it's like super mellow yeah. green runs. It's like working at a heli skiing company or company, sorry, 99% of the time you're skiing with guests that can hardly get down like a green run. Like there's not enough slope to actually yeah. get it any turns. speed. Yeah. 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 I mean, the same thing in backcountry, right? Like, I mean, if we're going skiing, especially in an area that maybe, you know, if I'm doing remote base camping skiing, it's like, you know, you don't jump into that cooler right away unless you like have some reason for it. Right. But you have to have like a lot of good reasons and like no bad reasons. And that's a tricky thing to get if you're just jumping into an area. And I think, yeah, I mean, with heli skiing, backcountry, all that, it's, it's just about controlling risk. Right. So it's like, I don't know if everyone 
fully gets that, like especially during COVID days. I wonder if people understand risk analysis. But did you did you ever have some like interactions with people in the backcountry through COVID where you noticed they weren't really mitigating risk or? Well, I mean, I mean, not even related to COVID, but yeah, sure, like all the time, right? People often with backcountry, I think a common misconception when you start out is you know, you're looking for like reasons to ski something, right? Well, it's, you know, there, there's this going on in the snowpack or it's this. Is, so you're looking for these green flags. And for me, it's always been like, you know, what's the one thing that's telling me not to do it? And maybe there's like 10 things telling me, yeah, this is a good idea. And it seems like it makes sense, but you know, there's that one thing. And even if that one thing is like, not even like hundred percent certain why risk like that? Because if it is like, if that one thing that could kill you is there, even if there's a small chance, why, why bother? Right? Like, so I've always looked for like the one red flag to like back off where I think a lot of people's risk analysis is like, Oh, it's like, you know, low, low, low or mod low, low, you know, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, there's some problems, but it's pretty good. So we'll go do whatever we want. And I think that's like, it should be the reverse onus. I don't know. But I think that's like, you know, that's just a learning curve, right? Like you have to have something bad happen to you. To, I was going to uh, say it's a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah, it can be. And it depends on like how quickly you want to go, right? And like if you're only putting in 10, 20 days a season, you know, you're going to be an old, old person by the time that you have uh, enough experience to like really make complex decision making in the backcountry. Um, and I don't know if that's always, I don't know if the, if those kind of ideas are really, um, you know, reinforced in like say AST programs, whereas you're like sold, oh, here's the AST, you know, AST1. You know, get your get your Beacon Shell probe, learn how to dig someone out, yay! And then now you can backcountry ski, and then oh well, now you need some experience. Do AST AST two, and you just keep doing these courses. But if you're not like skiing a hundred days a year, and like not only skiing in the backcountry hundred days a year, but like you know taking an active role and uh, active role in like group decision making and all that stuff. And then you get group dynamics that like screw that all up all the time where one really experienced person is making the decision for everyone or uh, a group of people cut off certain amounts of people or they limit work for other people. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about it eventually, but like, for example, sexism in, in ski in backcountry skiing, right? Like, you know, time and time again, even the act of the male saying, well, I'll trail break for the girls because I'm, I'm a little bit faster. Well, then they're never going to develop the muscles needed to trail break. So now you're depriving them of something where you think you're doing a good thing for whatever reason, maybe because of the way society is structured you know, you're, you're the male, you have to <laughs> it's kind of help, that help the female thing. bullshit kind of thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But then you, if, but even if it's not a girl, but this is more common I, that I see, you know, even if you're doing it for someone that's weaker, you know, uh, male or female, it's like, you're depriving them of 
being able to get to where you are. So, and, and not only the, the, like just building muscle tone and stuff, but like making those decisions and, and making the wrong decision too, right? Like, you know, trail breaking up to somewhere that doesn't make sense and then realizing, well, yeah, you shouldn't try to break trail that steep or whatever, but you only learn that by doing so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's all these kind of, I forget where we start with that, but. <laughs> I think it was on the topic of people making poor decisions or, oh, yeah. you know, risk mitigation. But since we just yeah, touched yeah. on the the topic of sexism, I think that's a really good point. Like, um, I mean, Renee and I were talking about one reason we like going ski touring with you and it's because you give that equal opportunity. And a lot of the time women don't have the opportunity to learn when skiing in with groups of men, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like even the the way that we progress, like I remember skiing in Japan with a bunch of my guy friends from Fernie and there was this kind of, this really big hit in the middle of the forest. We were skiing, uh, where was it? I was living in Hakaba, I can't remember what the hill was, but they all went off of it and they like lawn chaired on the other side, just completely pulled down in the snow and it was in the trees and I was pretty nervous about hitting it. And you know, like if I go skiing with Renee or with the girls, it's like, we'll talk about the hit. Maybe we'll look at the landing, look at the takeoff, come back and hit it again. And it was like, just send it, just freaking send it. And like, they didn't really give me the time to think about how to hit it or to develop that skill set to feel confident hitting stuff blindly. Or, you know, it's just this rushed kind of, okay, I'm not going to wait for you to do it. I'll just do it. And it's like yeah. having the patience for progression and creating a safe space for them to like try and maybe not make it. And um, I've even been experiencing that in mountain biking because I haven't mountain biked in six years and had a concussion for most of the summer and then jumped in with my boyfriend's friend group who's, they call themselves the shit hawks and I call them the poogles. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. because their, uh, their chat group is the poo emoji and an eagle. So I call them the poogles. I think it's better fitting, but they're all super gnarly, like love to suffer, hardcore on the up, hardcore on the down. And it, it's been really hard entering that group and feeling like I'm holding everybody back. But he's been pretty good at creating a space for me where like he's proud of me every time I go out and I progress a little bit. Right. And that's kind of a I think that's a barrier that a lot of women deal with in adrenaline sports for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like, Oh, sorry, Renee, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I have two things that came up here. One of them was that you were talking about the ASTs and I feel like I learned the first AST and it just teaches you that you should be scared of everything. So then you go out there and you're like, Oh, well now I'm scared of everything, but I don't actually like really know what to do yet. I just know that I should be scared of it but I don't know what I'm scared of. So you end up trying to find mentorship. So I was trying to find people to go out with. And I think that is a big barrier that people have is trying to find people they can go out with that they trust. And then when I have now like been on the flip side of that, where I've had girls who want to get out into the backcountry and they're coming to me as their mentor saying, hey, can you take me out? And I am still in a place in my own backcountry learning where I don't feel comfortable being, like you said, that experienced person that's having to make the decision for the group because the other people are just learning. And it makes me feel like I have too much responsibility in that decision, whereas I'm used to going out with people who I can say, all right, this is what I see. Is this what you guys see? This is what I'm worried about. Is this what you guys are worried about? And it's a bit more of a conversation. So 
well, I guess like how do we get people past that I'm scared of everything to okay this is kind of what I see um, was one point I had and then the other one just quickly because Tori was talking about just like needing time to process features I actually read a, st a study a PhD dissertation last week that said that men in extreme sports for men they have four spaces that light up in their brains for spatial awareness women's ha women have zero and that's why it takes a little bit longer and women like to session things just to wrap their brains around, okay, how do I do this? This is how I do it. Try it a few times, see someone do it. Okay, now I'm ready, let's go. So I thought that was, that a was study? really interesting. It was part of the study, yeah. It was, mentioned so they, in, it was mentioned in this PhD dissertation. So it was a different study. I didn't read that study. She was just referencing to it in regards to why all female groups are really good for female progression in mountain biking specifically. Anyway. Interesting. So <laughs> I think so you, you touched on a few really key things I like to bring up um, with the AST one thing. It's like, yeah, like I've tail guided a lot of AST one courses over the last like 15 years and there's like usually like two extremes that come out of ASD courses. Like the one that's like scared and they don't want backcountry ski anymore because like you're gonna die, you know, or whatever. Um, and then there's the the like extreme other side where it's like, oh, now I take my AC one, I'll go ski Granddaddy Cooler, I'll go ski, you know, um, you know, Amers Cooler or whatever, something that will like kill me if I get wrong, because I know how to dig my friend up and yay, you know, but. Um, and then you have like a very small percentage of people in the middle that like, like sort of say, okay, you know, this is what we've learned and this is all new to me. And I like to say, you know, AST1, people forget it's just an introduction, right? You don't, you don't actually learn anything realistically. It's like, you know, if you were a brain surgeon and you read, like you went through the closed notes of like brain surgery, you're not going to go do brain surgery, right? Like you need to, go and go to school and learn how to do brain surgery and practice it, practice it in a safe environment, uh, practice it under mentors, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, is backcountry skiing brain surgery? I don't know. But, you know, it's not something that you can just like look through the AST1 manual and be like, okay, I got it and go and do it and, and stay alive for a long time uh, by skiing, like skiing stuff that could kill you uh, if you get it wrong. So, uh, I think that's interesting concept that like this is an introductionary course only and you've got like a lifetime of learning ahead. So I think it's I think it may discourage people a lot because it's sort of sold to you a lot of times as like this is all you need to go backcountry skiing. And then you get out of it and you're like, Ugh, like I don't know anything. Um and then your the 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 study is interesting because like when when Tori was explaining, you know her mountain biking group, and like hitting that the hitting the booter and everything, it's like it's really interesting. Like because I ski, I, th I think more than fifty percent of my partners are probably uh, female, uh, but then my you know the most of the partners that I ski with are like, you know we're skiing a big objective or skiing something that's like legitimately dangerous uh with like 
you know, the objective hazard is such that, you know, you can't limit all hazard. You, you could die even if you do everything right or whatever, or perceive it as right. Um, those are mostly males. And it's interesting, like when I ski with females, we have a lot more open discussion um, if it's allowed <laughs> by some of the males in the group. Um, and there's a lot more like analysis and like more questions like, you know, is this worth it? it? Like, does this even make sense? Why are we even doing this? Those kind of questions come up. Whereas in like the male dominated groups, especially the ones where we're going after big objectives, which I guess it's warranted because there's a understanding that we're doing what we're doing. But those groups are generally like, there's very little discussion. You're just going to go and do it. And, and you just go and do it. And the, the two are, I mean, it's a generalization, obviously, but in my experience, I think there's definitely, there's definitely something to be said about that. I'm, that's an interesting study uh, pointing in that direction. There's actually also research that suggests, like now that you said that, there's research that suggests that um, lots of men do feel more comfortable in backcountry situations where it is a co-ed group because they aren't subject to like that objective specific goal when, and there is more conversation and there is more group dynamic than an all male group. It actually does have like research that backs that that actually can be a better and safer space for everyone. Hmm. I call that unsafe space, the bro zone. <laughs> <laughs> the bro There's zone. been, the bro zone. There's been a couple times where I have been in the bro zone as a single female and it is like uncomfortable. Um, one of them was actually after Renee experienced uh, the your fatality on, on New Year's. Um, uh, somebody went into a tree well just un unexpectedly, like great skier, just coincidentally bad situation. And I went out skiing with my uh, my boyfriend and some of his friends, the frickin' Poogles, who are Narbar, and they just left me at the top to carpet ski down this slope through the trees. And I was immediately like, okay, like thinking about it, I was like, what if something happened? They just left me and they just had this speed kind of all day long. And in my head, I was like, I think I need to say something to make this a safe space for myself, which is something that women need to do as well in those situations. And it's, it's hard to, because it's very intimidating. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, Rose it's up. interesting. Like I get a lot of people, they say, well, like I, I debriefed quite a few people in the Bow Valley um, after uh, deaths or near death experiences. Uh, people seem to contact me for those. And one of the things that is, is common is like, you know, you're sort of seeing like not all the time, uh, but you know, when there's a, a lead up to like a, a major event, like, a bunch of little mistakes and they were like, Oh, you know, I didn't really want to say anything. Like I didn't think it was a big deal and everyone else seemed fine, but like probably a few other people in your group were thinking the same thing. And then there, I said, well, why didn't you say something? You know, like why, why didn't you feel like you could say like, well, you know, I, I, it's hard to find partners and I don't want to like lose partner. And I often say like, you know, if you're skiing with people that, you can't bring up concerns without them like not wanting to ski with you. Well, then you should just not ski with them. Um, they're probably not a very good partner if they're not going to like listen to you. Um, and the idea of like, you know, and especially 
and people are like pressuring you to do something and you don't want to do it. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to do it and you cannot do it. And you can go and do something else, especially in a backcountry situation. I think, you know, that's like a pretty big red flag. Like, because for me, I want to like often put it down to the lowest risk tolerance um, in a normal environment. If, if I do do like um, a lot of times we do uh, these mostly women only skill developing uh, days where like my girlfriend and her friends or whoever will go out and also are just be a fly on the wall and they're going to do stuff. And sometimes, you know, in th that kind of environment, because they're trying to build uh, like skills, I'll, I'll try to pressure them a little bit, but I think that is different than say, um, you know, someone saying like, well, we're going to ski this gnarly thing. We don't care if you don't want to, you can go down the skin track like that kind of person. Like I'd rather just not ski than ski with that person. So it's not like worth, you know, worth being in a major accident that could lead to a death to like hold on to a ski partner that doesn't understand this kind of like risk assessment. Uh, acceptance. Yeah, hundred percent. I remember I had that exact conversation with Brandon, um, trying to find a partner that has a similar risk tolerance and, you know, safety requirements in perspective, because those situations are really uncomfortable. Um, you know, what I realized is, well, my current boyfriend and I, sorry, this is like swooping a little bit, but, um, our first date was ski touring and I oh, realized yeah. That was maybe not a good idea because A, <laughs> if you're halfway up the skin track and you find out they're a Trump supporter or some other really weird shit, like they idolized Ted Bundy, you're out in the boonies. There's no coming back from that. There's no like, oh, my mom called me. Let's like, I gotta go. You're out of service. And you also um, maybe don't know them the best to understand what that risk tolerance is and their education levels. And um, the only reason that I agreed to go ski touring with them was because we had a lot of similar friends that I know are educated and they are, they do have a lot of experience. And I did ask him, so girls, if you're going to go on a first date and it's ski touring, ask him about his experience, ask him about his AST level education and get the deets. Has there ever been an incident? Like give him the 20 questions, but, um, yeah, realized we'll be doing that again. Just it went great. We're still dating, just so you know. Yeah. But <laughs> that risk tolerance is really important, and those safety requirements are super important. And yeah, ditch them if they ain't there, honey. That's what it comes down to. I think it's interesting. Like on that point, like a lot of people are skiing with just people now because the sport's growing so fast that it's really hard to find partners, right? And like. Um, and sort of like what Renee was saying, like, it was interesting. She was saying like, you know, people are coming to her, you know, saying like, oh, can you basically mentor me? And she's like, feels like she needs a mentor. And, you know, um, that's what's happening now. It's like the, the sport's growing so fast that like people, people that are mentoring people are like people that are like, quote unquote, very experienced are people with like, you know, maybe 50, 60 days under the belt in their life. And it's like, I mean, that's just like the very start of it. Right. And, but then to someone that's, you know, just got their AST one has been out on like two days, it seems like a lot. And so now they're like trusting them and these people are, don't want to feel like they can't be trusted maybe. So then they, you know, take that lead role on, but 
are they ready or not? It's, it's it becomes like a really complex issue, and it's one that's going to be uh, one that grows as our sport grows. I think. Um, speaking of sport growing, I think I would like to like swerve because you just finished writing a guidebook, like literally I last did. week. Yeah, it was um, not, and I uh, yeah, was it a week ago? What's today? Not even a week ago, five days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think like one thing I learned from the early days of your guidebooks was how much freaking time goes into it because you're going out skiing all these places and then you spend hours and when I say hours I actually mean days in front of a computer clicking map points <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know maybe you can just like give like actually like a rundown of like why you decided to write new guidebooks for the area and how much goes into that why is an interesting question. Um, I remember being like, probably like, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And uh, me and my buddy Jeff would go like, you know, drop off the backside of our little hill in Ontario and go explore. And um, I remember, and we started like, climbing other like we you know ski off the lift go down the backside then figure our way back and then we start doing other hills and around the area and stuff and then we find cool zones and you know we'd start bringing our friends there they would hurt here that oh someone skied there or whatever and they would ask us to go up there so we'd take them and here we are like 12 years old guiding i guess i don't know <laughs> if you'd call it that but um and i think it's just a continuation of that like I was always just super stoked, even at a young age, like, you know, here's a new place, you know, like, yeah, you can ski the same run over and over and over again. It's pretty easy. It's fun for sure. But like, you know, skiing somewhere you don't know, you have no idea. Is there a big cliff down there? Is, are you going to get stuck somewhere and have to walk out? I don't know. It's just an adventure, right? And to take people on those adventures or allow them to have access to those kind of adventures, um, I think is just something that, I think is great and I enjoy providing that for people. And at the same time, I know, you know, when I use the word adventure, um, I guess I mean like more of the commonplace use of it, like you go out and you do something because there's a whole different side of adventure. It's like, you know, if you look at the definition of adventure, it's like when, th when shit goes bad and, that is something I do constantly by exploring areas. So, you know, when I'm going into the basis of all these guidebooks is going out and finding places to not go. And I often say like guidebooks are more about, about where not to go than where to go. So it's, I'll go and ski a whole bunch of areas and make the list of like, this is a bad area. Don't go there. Don't go here. Don't go there. And then I'm sort of left with like this, places that are skiable and then you know you find those gems among them and that's sort of like the evolution of working a zone and what eventually makes it into the guidebook that takes like years and years and years of skiing and when i say years i mean like 150 days a year skiing um so you're talking like you know if if we're looking at the bow valley book here that i just did in this area like many, many, many hundreds of days. I couldn't even put a number on it. Like it's six, 700 days, I don't know, of skiing in these areas. And a lot of it's just 
horrible, horrible bushwhacking. Lovitz um, skiing down to a cliff, repelling it, and realizing that's not going to, you know, yeah, I could put it in the guidebook, but at least I know there's a cliff you have to repel or whatever. Um, and then you find the sweet spots. And then, and then on top of that, when you start to actually go to make a book, when, when that's the actual focus, you know, now I need pictures. Um, so the pictures are like a whole different thing where you're just doing like, you could be doing like a five day trip where you're just like trying to get like three pictures and because of the weather doesn't work out, you know, you're just camping in horrible, you know, whiteout and you're just sitting there on a ridge going like, this is where I need the picture. I'm not fucking moving from this spot until I get this picture because to get back here takes a day and to get out takes a day. So I'm just waiting here doing nothing, which some of my partners don't enjoy. <laughs> and some of that I do solo because people, I take a couple of people on a mission like that and they just stop skiing with me. Um, and so the pictures is a big thing. And that's usually the thing that's like the grindiest uh, as far as the skiing goes. It's just like, just feels like a grind. And sometimes I, uh, during seasons like this season, I had a list of pictures and where I needed them from. And I would just carry this list around with me. And if it, if it looked like it was good weather, I'd go to that spot and just go there and sit there and wait, get the picture, ski out, I'm not doing any real skiing. Uh, you know, not what people consider skiing. And then I'm just like checking those down on the list. And near the end of the season, it's like, I got these three, I really need them. And it, it gets pretty stressful. And then after the pictures comes the writing, which is like the really, really boring part. Um, because when you write like a three or 400 page book about directions to go skiing, it often feels like it's just, you're just saying the same thing over and over. It's like, this is a sweet run. It's got great views, go here. You know, like, and then the directions go up the skin track, go left, go right, go up here, go up the ridge, ski down. Yay. So that gets like really, really tiresome. Um, and that's like, you know, just doing the writing, you're talking like, like this one I started in April because I was injured and I, I, I got done last Friday. And I probably spent on an average four or five hours every single day. I don't mean like a work week day or anything. I mean like seven days a week, four or five hours. And in the last month I've been writing, um, you know, about I, I'm working eight hours a day and then I'm writing about, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. And then I'm sleeping for a few hours and then back to work and did that for about the last month straight. And so that was, that's sort of the writing process. So then, are you in the burnout phase right now? Yeah, I'm pretty fucked. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like come Friday, I was like, you, you ever been like so fatigued or like maybe so drunk that you're like, you're doing stuff, but you're just like, you're doing it and you're just doing it and you don't know why you're doing it, but you just continue doing it and you feel like you could just like, die that's yeah, sort of that's like, like been my life yeah. for the last like yeah so it's like that year <laughs> I think. yeah so you're just like super fatigued like i'd wake up and i'm just like i mean i want to be awake i want to eat i want to do anything go to work survive work come home just start writing start working yeah. 
and just it's, do that for eight, 10 hours. It's the definition yeah. of surviving, not thriving. It's like working yeah. towards thriving, but dang, it's a process to get there. And you're just consistently like scallop potatoes, just slice and diced as thin as possible. That's, that's the burnout. So yeah. Does putting, does putting that much time into it, like does at any point, do you start to hate skiing? Does it detract from your skiing? Does making <laughs> it a job make you like skiing less? Or, or what's the relationship there? <laughs> uh, it's interesting, like, that's a hard one. Like, so I, I used to be like a freestyle coach. I used to be, you know, I used to instruct skiing and snowboarding. And um, like I said, I would never do those jobs again because like, like, yeah, it's fun to get paid for like shredding a half pipe five days a week. But then on those two days, I'm not even, I'm not interested. I just stay home. Right. And I'm getting too old for that. So it didn't matter anyways. But, um, I, I mean, I definitely felt that early in my other ski careers. Um, this, I don't know if I feel that way. Like definitely like, you know, about two weeks ago, I was like, I'm never writing another book again. Screw this <laughs> sort of thing, right? Like, but I said that about the last book and I said that about, I said that about every book. So, you know, you sort of forget, you know, in, in two years when I'm probably going to start doing my next one, it'll be like, I'll forget that how much of a grind it was and I'll just start doing it. And I mean, a lot of it's self-imposed, like the, the suffering I entail, it's like, I, I make that deadline. It's, no one's making that deadline for me. It's just like, I made a deadline. I have to make it. I know it's going to be X amount of hours of work. I'm just going to have to grind it out. So it's not like someone's like told me I had to be done this. So I could, you know, could take another year and do it and not get more than three hours of sleep a night. But why? I don't know. It's ready to be done. So I did it. So I, I don't think it takes away from my ski. <laughs> I don't know. You still, it sounds like you're still, still able to enjoy skiing as a separate kind of passion, but then like the grind is this aspect. And I know Renee and I, I mean, we haven't written a book by any means. We're freaking social media hoes pretty much. <laughs> but through our stuff, it's like, I don't know. I found that, I guess writing the book is still technically for you, isn't it? It's your own guided project at the end of the day. Yeah, like I would, like honestly, I probably write these things even if no one read them, right? Like, and that sounds really. It's a stupid. passion. It doesn't. <laughs> no, it's well, yeah. I, don't know. I think it sounds stupid. Like when I started out, like my original concept for Confessions of the Ski Bum was I was gonna make these little like ten-page books, and you know, like you know, Confessions of the Ski Bum, Twin Cairns or Wild Ridge or Egypt Lake or whatever. These little you know black and white photocopy things. And I wasn't going to put my name on it. And I was just going to leave them around town. And I thought that was really funny. And, and it would have been cool. Like, oh, what the hell is this? Like, people just find them, right? And like, whoa, this is info, right? So I, I try to like play into the ski bum thing, you know, and like that kind of culture that I grew up with. And um, like, like kind of like hidden information or like, you know, I don't know. And um, I mean, a few mountain guides I knew at the time convinced me that was a really bad idea because it's sort of like you're just providing info without like who you are, or your background, and is this safe to do? And is this good info? And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. 
but even before that i was just writing stuff so like i was exploring areas and i was just writing about them just for my own documentation and then my friends would ask me oh like do you have info on that i'd just send them the text file and be like here you go like and then they would ask for pictures so then i would go and you know find some pictures take them and then give it to them and draw lines on them and that's sort of you know the early early stages and that was just something i always did uh, even when i was like before i was a teenager when we were back in ontario we used to like make little maps and stuff and like give them to people like well this is where we've been going and so it's just it's just fun right like it's fun to share things and and the more info you have the better i think so i think it, it creates like a safer environment uh, not everyone agrees but i think the stats speak for themselves so not too i mean worried. on the not everyone agrees thing yeah kinda, not everyone's gonna agree right <laughs> nope i think that there's definitely been some animosity towards the whole local gatekeeping of the hot spots and we know that you've <laughs> definitely experienced that like some people have been super pissed that you've highlighted these zones in your books and they're like everybody's gonna go there and i mean what's your perspective on that what's it been like to kind of manage that like how have you addressed those conversations uh usually i just make fun of them but <laughs> like i don't know some of them have been pretty serious um you know um like early on just people confronting you at party like when i lived in banff and was more into like going to house parties and stuff i don't do that much now but you know um you know people confront you and like not like violently but like kind of like verbally abusive and even like friends of mine who like people know that they ski with me and then they'll they're like confronted and like told off and they're like you shouldn't even ski with that guy and it's like what the hell like he's like that doesn't even make sense and you know there's this whole like the ski culture i grew up with is like it's sort of like the echo of like the 80s of 90s of like white male ski culture in the united states where it's like i skied that first it's mine i'm gonna name it Nah, 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 you know, and it's like, who fucking cares if you skied at first? Like, first thing, you know, now with the technology we have and the amount of strong skiers, like anything can be skied. You know, if it's skiable, people are going to ski it. So, like, you know, I like to say, like, do first ascents matter anymore? You know, they're interesting. It's cool. I see maybe no one's skied it before, but like, as far as like, you know, progression of the sport does it does it actually matter i don't know um so like don't don't be all egotistical about it right like who cares and then but then like so what i grew up in is that culture where it's like you know ski at first don't tell anyone about it <laughs> so like what and you know it's just like weird gatekeeping it's like for example like wawa ridge in in sunshine like the wizard shoots wizard wall whatever you want to call it there's like a hundred different names uh over the last like 50 years it's had but every single generation thinks that they were the first ones to ski it whereas i know like you know fifth generation families where like you know the grandfather skied there as a kid and he's told me oh yeah we skied there like when we were 10 you know whatever we used to hike up there and go back there when we were little kids and then you get like this next culture that's like no one's ever skied there before we're the first we're gonna name it and how dare you tell people about it 
But then you go there in any March and there's moguls, even before my book. And it's like, well, people know, you know, and this idea that by exposing that more people to this area, it's like more dangerous is just first thing ridiculous because a lot of people used to get, you know, cliffed out back there. Now they don't as much because they know where to go. But also people are going there regardless. People, regardless if there's info, regardless if there's, you know, people telling you about it, people are following tracks wherever they want and doing whatever they want. So my perspective is at least they have some pictures and some info and they can like not get cliffed out and they don't have to get rescued. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of where I went with that. Oh, almost lost video again. <laughs> I was like, oh, he gone. Oh no, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that definitely answers the question. I think it's like, I mean, you kind of, any ski town I've ever lived in, there's always going to be that local gatekeeping, no matter what. I experienced in Tofino and Wanaka and Fernie. Um, people, I don't know, they feel like they're entitled to those spaces. And, you know, there's places like Banff, for example, where pretty much nobody's an authentic local at the end of the day. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting, it's an interesting mentality. And um I think like the more, like you said, the more information, the better, right? It's how we can make more educated decisions. You don't end up in those terrain uh, situations that are consequential and could lead to a fatality or an injury. And, you know, like I have so many friends, knock on wood, I've never experienced one myself, but, you know, they they dip into the back country and something goes wrong. Like in Japan, um, when I lived there, there's a couple guys that just dipped under the rope to this area where, everybody skis the trees a little bit out of the boundary. And um, they ended up, one of the guys ended up hitting a tree and shattering his pelvis. And in Japan, they needed to get him back within the rope boundary to be helped by ski patrol. Otherwise it would have cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. And like their search and rescue teams usually tell people to hang out overnight. They won't come out and look for you at nighttime. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah. The more information, the better, less gatekeeping, the better. And that's kind of part of what we're talking about and making an equitable space where everybody feels welcome and included and educated. And it's the same thing goes for sexism as well, right? It's creating that space to learn and grow together and education shouldn't be, and information shouldn't be gatekeeped. So we're stoked no. on your book. We're very excited yeah, to read it. <laughs> yes. I own several. I don't, don't want to read it anymore. <laughs> I'm done reading it. Send it out. <laughs> but um, I know I don't know if you're gonna bring it up. But I know we were talking, uh, me and Renee, anyways, about um, you know off the record or whatever previously about how I provide the the books for free as well, and um, people always get like a lot of my friends they get mad like why are you doing that you can make more money because i'm you know i'm not um i wouldn't call myself well off i'm i'm fine i'm comfortable or whatever but uh you know the books make a little bit of money not uh you know i'm not getting rich off it that's for sure and um but i also provide for free because i feel like you know you know even like um you know money is a form of gatekeeping right like if you don't have the money like you know, maybe, you know, 45 bucks, 40 bucks. It doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, 
15 years ago living in my car in the alleyway in Banff. And that seemed like a lot of money back then. And, you know, I was like stealing recycling to buy food to ski full time and live in the backseat of my car. And it's like, yeah, I would not buy a guidebook back then, like 40 bucks. No way. Like that's, that's food for a few days. Um, so I'm sure those people, like there's not probably that many, but maybe there's more with rent prices. I don't know. Um, you know, at least they can, at the worst, they can get that book, download it, and they can have that information. Um, you know, I'd rather them spend that money on AST1 course or, or food or whatever they need, you know, than if, if that's what it comes down to, right? But Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think before we go, we should let everyone know where they can find that. And on the topic of like zone ownership, it's funny because nobody owns this land anyway, and it's all stolen in the first place. So the fact that some people think that they have better rights to it than other people is like also like what's wrong with everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anytime, like, I mean, anytime you say you like, oh, that's my ski line is like. Who are you and why do you think that? <laughs> like they're tight I, I find it bizarre. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> the tight bubbles. Full of shit, mate. Full of shit. Yeah. It's uh what you said about like economic barriers too. I mean, that fits into the whole tight butthole elitist theme, right? Like skiing's not accessible for everybody. I no, know so many people. Yeah, like going to university, I found it really interesting the number of people that I met who live so close to the mountains, but they've never ventured out there. A, because they don't feel comfortable. B, having that amount of gear and knowledge is a difficult thing. So um, I think the way that your experience and how that's factored into your priorities and helping increase access to knowledge and everything, like that's super valuable. And I think that anybody listening to this, if you have the uh, disposable income to invest in it and help increase access to those resources for people who don't have that income. I mean, this is a great time to invest and support Marcus's work and then hopefully get other people that education so they can make safe decisions too, because making equitable space, it's about increasing access to resources, opportunities, community, um, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the, the womb tang big stick mission is to to create an equitable space so yes I'm sure i'm sure we're running out of time but on the point of gear i just want to make sure everyone knows anyone listening you don't need the best gear to start if you go on my website you're going to find a thing talks about gear don't need like all the newest stuff for 10 years i skied on stuff that was being held together by ski straps and like 50 dollars pairs of skis skis i found in the garbage Literally, I'm not even joking. And, you know, like camping and stuff, I just buy like the shittiest tarp I could at Canadian Tire. My backpack was heavy, but my legs are bigger. So whatever. And yeah, I think I think there's a lie that like you need all the best gear to go out there. But, you know, as long as you got the good safety gear, just get whatever you need and, and go and have fun because you don't have to look good, you know, and have shiny gear. You just have to learn and have fun. Exactly. Egg salad. That's, That's a awesome. big bush energy. <laughs> <laughs> big bush <Yeah>. energy? 
Tori and I have this inside joke. They were trying to make an outside joke where whenever you do something rad, you're like, oh, my bush just grew an inch. Oh. So, yeah. like, if you well, see someone do something really yeah, awful, I love like, bush, so. oh, I bet that yeah. girl is a huge bush. And we're trying to make it an outside joke, but maybe we might I'm, get it. I'm there. all down with any bush jokes, right? Like, my background in skiing. We should, we should really make a ski segment where we just ski the thickest trees we can. And call it like big bush energy or something. I'm so down. This year I'm actually asking for a smaller ski so that I can, you know, really oh, yeah. get intimate Tangle. with the, the big bushes in a whole yeah, other yeah. way. But um, the big bush thing is actually like, a, I guess it's kind of like a play on words from like, there used to be this thing back in the day where you'd see a hog guy and you'd be like, yeah, huge dick. So now it's like, you see like a girl shredding, it's like huge bush. <laughs> It's that whole, like, I want to say uh, Martha Stewart or Betty Crocker or some type of legendary culinary woman was like, you know what? I don't know why we say, like, pussy is an insult. Because at the end of the day, a dick and balls is pretty weak. But a pussy can take a pounding. Oh, yeah. I've, I've read that. That was, that was Betty White. I yeah, don't know yeah. why you're thinking cooking girls. Yeah. is Betty White. Anyway, Betty, what did I say? I said Betty Crocker, <laughs> yeah, Martha Stewart. Where that came from. You know, those are like three iconic white ladies. I mean, Martha Stewart went to jail and never snitched, where freaking six nine Takashi, whatever, snitched the day he got in. So huge bush. It's what it's about. It's a vibe. Um, on that note, everybody. We digress. We digress. Um, Marcus, do you want to let everybody know where to find you? Um, uh, where to find your new book? Is this kind of your time to plug any sponsors you want to hit up? You do you, boo-boo. All right, yeah, my website is confessionsoftheskibum.com. Uh, you can order the book directly from me, um, either through that, there'll be a link, or uh, go to gettothemountains.com. That's uh, my publishing company. Uh, my sponsors, the ones that have led, led, provided me with gear that is not held by ski straps, uh, Plum, Zag, uh, Ski Appeal, Wonder, uh, Fisher, Hope that's it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've all uh, been really great, and it's been nice to ski uh, new stuff every year. Cool, keeping the dream alive. All right. Yeah. Well, we're gonna sign off. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for our second episode of Big Stick Energy, and we hope to see you again to deliver some big bush conversations. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're just going to end it here. <laughs> yeah, have a good night, everybody. Thanks a lot. All right. See ya.